This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Bob Lane. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School by night. And my day job, I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer as a partner at the law firm of Stevens and Lee. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Rosella Harvey, one of the most highly respected commercial real estate owners' representatives in the southeastern Pennsylvania region. Uh, Rosella is a registered architect uh, by, by trade and by history and a lead accredited professional. We'll talk about what that means as we go on. Uh, and she acts for, on behalf of her clients as their real estate project partner from project inception through completion. She's a principal in North Star Owners Representation Company and North Star Museums and Education. And we're going to hear a lot about that. I'm going to let Rosella tell you about her background, but I know that one of the things she's most proud of is that she was the 2017 honoree for the Girl Scouts of Eastern Pennsylvania and what she's done with uh, young women and, and, and many uh circumstances is something she's very proud of and she's been really well regarded and honored here in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania and and uh, beyond uh, but we'll hear more about that so let me formally welcome you Rosella thank you Bob I'm so glad to have you on the real estate hour um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how you got into this business and uh, you know your background and then we'll get into some of the uh, themes that we're going to talk about that's great that's great so as you mentioned I'm a registered architect uh, I come from a family of engineers uh, very much like the way that you know architecture combines the artistic side with engineering and um, as you mentioned I'm also a lead accredited professional I completed my architectural internship here in the Philadelphia area. And then I worked for six years for an international insurance company appraising historic buildings, cost estimating, focused on risk management in both uh, Great Britain and then here in the mid-Atlantic area of the US. And then you know, got into the world of owner's representation. And you know, to me, uh, really what makes a perfect day is if I am wearing a suit and presenting to a board or the CEO in the morning, and then in the afternoon if I have on my boots and hard hat and I'm on the job site. Well, that sounds, uh, you must be a quick change artist. Indeed. Is that, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I, I get that also as a real estate lawyer, is that same, uh, you know, being a quote in a suit when you're, when you're working with people in the, in the, in the room and, and strategizing and planning and analyzing. And then in our bit world, in the real estate, you get to put on those boots and go out on the site and uh, you know, walk, walk the line, as, uh, as we say, walk the property. So, um, we're going to focus, Rosella, on, on a few themes that you and I talked about today. Uh, we're going to talk about what you think about at the outset of a project. And for our listeners, this could be a major... Uh, uh, trophy office building or, uh, or, or or educational or museum project or it could be a home or an addition to your house mm-hmm. so whatever you're, you're thinking about doing um, you know we're going to help you figure out how you go about it so uh, again if you want to uh, have ask any questions or join our conversation please call us at one eight four four wharton 
1-844-942-7866. And then we're going to talk about how you manage risk. Risk management in construction projects is probably one of the the least understood by most laymen, uh, but it's the most important thing to the people who are financing it and paying for it and and, and performing it. So we're going to talk about managing risk. And finally... uh, you know, how do you evaluate your project at the end of it? You know, when it's completed, when is it completed? Some projects like my house is never completed, but, uh, you know, hopefully we can, uh, we can get a benchmark. So, uh, Rosella, what, at the very beginning, and you get involved in all kinds of projects. I mean, so what, what is one of the first things that you would counsel? You, you're the owner's representative. So what would you, you counsel the owner when you first step in? What, what, what's, what's the plan? What do you do first? The first thing we do is, you know, I I ask the question, what is your ultimate goal? And really challenge them to say, think not just to the day when you receive the keys and you cut the ribbon, but go beyond that until year three, year five, when you're in your new space. You know, how do you want it to operate? How do you want it to work? And so when you really, um, you know, sometimes you, you know, you just need to take a step back. um, And we do that very early on project planning um, to say, um, let's analyze the long term goal. But then from there, you can really determine what the appropriate long term budget is and what the appropriate uh, schedule and timeline is. And, and I imagine that implicit in what you're talking about is that in order to look forward, you also have to look back a bit and say, you know, what has been working in my, my original space? You know, what do I need to, uh, to duplicate? But what hasn't been working? What do I want to correct? And then, you know, what, what is changing? You know, that, okay, so in law firms, we need to have big law libraries way back in the day, and mm-hmm. now they're mm-hmm. obsolete. And I assume in any industry, there's that kind of evaluation. Absolutely. There is that evaluation. And and, and to also challenge and say, okay, is this really what you want? Does this really support your business? Um, And if your answer is, well, my shareholders need this to be an appropriate investment, and so therefore we need to cut cost, and that's why we're reducing our square footage or having an open floor plan, but to say, okay, well, what effect does that have on your employees, for example, Uh, and are they able to do their job effectively and efficiently, which ultimately enables you to make money in this environment that you are proposing? And then there's a whole mindset change. So I know uh, in in a lot of industries that are used to having hard wall offices, but want to go to an open floor plan, Mm -hmm. um, the question is, is, is that something that's not appropriate for that business? So if you have to have lots of confidential meetings, um, well, does it have to be in each person's private office or can you have conference rooms and so otherwise it's open? Or is it for all phone calls have to be very confidential? So that, that's, one, that's one, one aspect. The other is, well, it could work either way, but people think it has to be the old way. Do, do you get involved in changing? Does the owner sometimes want you to be the, uh, the, 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 uh, the advocate for change instead of uh, them taking responsibility? Often, yes. Uh, and to really, especially when, when you are the owner and your employees are saying, we need more space, we need more space, then I am the one to say, Let's evaluate, let's evaluate your current space. Let's take a walk. 
do you really need more space or do you need to more efficiently uh, consider how you store items? Why are you taking up three rooms of things that you don't need any longer? Uh, so when you're that programming phase uh, is, is critical to the long-term success because if you are programming and determining that you need more space than what you do, it costs more obviously per square foot. It adds more time to the overall project. So it's really creatively saying, okay, let's not just say I need a classroom. And if you're in a children's museum, for example, I need classrooms for the students during the week and I need birthday party rooms on the weekend, then okay, then those can be the same room. You don't need two rooms. And so you want to design them so they're adaptable, that not built in in a way where you need two rooms, you can use one. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I guess uh, there's also mindset. In the, and I think by now this is getting kind of axiomatic, but um, you know, the digital digitalization of hard records. So, you know, whether it's uh, medical records, law records, business records, that you have storerooms just filled with, uh, with uh, you know, hard copies and, and, and files, the, the cost, I said, well, the time and the cost of digitizing these things is uh, daunting to most, uh, right. most businesses. But on the other hand, you can show them how uh, it may seem daunting, but frankly, the cost savings over the term of a lease in terms of saving that space could be enormous. Absolutely, and it's it's uh, interesting how many times we will start. It's time to move. You know, we say say we absolutely have to keep all of these records, and then you pay for the square footage to house those records in their new space. You pay to relocate them from point A to point B. And then as they're putting the files away in their new space, they say, we don't need these. And then the shredder gets called in. Hmm. Well, you, you know, we, we sort of la launched into this. And one of the things that might be lost on some of our listeners is because your role is you are a, an owner's representative. That's how you describe yourself. Um, to m much of the world who are not as uh, sophisticated or at least not, not as aware of the, the industry, we think of project managers, we think of uh, construction managers, we think of uh, owner's reps, we think of, and, and even an owner's rep could be an agent or a broker, but that's not what you are. What are those different functions and you know, how are they distinct and, and are you, do you sometimes wear different hats or? That's a great question. Uh, so, you know, really your project, you might have, as you said, various project managers. That might be the title that various people on your team have. So within an architecture office, you may have a project manager that's managing the project for on behalf of the design team. You will have from your construction team a project manager who is the person managing uh, the construction from the construction side. And, but typically a project manager is you are giving the project manager uh, tangible tasks. I need X and then they manage the process to get there. An owner's representative takes much more of a holistic view to say, um, you know, I have a client that I've had for 10 years that says, I can find a decent project manager um, in many locations, but I trust my owner's representative wholeheartedly with my entire program. So as an owner's representative, you become an extension of that client. So uh, 
you know, this would actually be some interesting stories that you have, but, but, but um, which I want to get into is the different types of roles that you have and different kinds of clients. Uh, but, but first, actually, let me welcome any new listeners who have tuned in since we started at the top of the hour. You're listening to Business Radio Channel 111, The Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane, an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And my day job, I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer as a partner at the law firm of Stevenson Lee. Our guest today is Rosella Harvey, one of the most highly respected commercial real estate owners' representatives in this region. And we're now talking about what that really means. So if you want to uh, join our conversation, listeners, our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And if you're listening on Friday, May 4th, and may the 4th be with you, as they say, uh, we're here live on the studio, so uh, feel free to, to, to call again, and we'll get your live questions. Uh, so, Rosella, um, you've distinguished between a project manager, and you could have a project manager as a title in a construction company. It could be a, t- a title in a uh, architectural firm. It could be a title within a corporation, somebody who's like designated to manage it on behalf of whatever that... that um, uh, agent is so, um, uh, but the owner's representative is really in locus parentis, as we say, in, in, in the in the location of, of the of the owner. And uh, so, if you've been the uh, owner's rep for a long time, uh, I assume that there's some owners who are very hands-on, somewhat controlling. They want to be involved, and maybe there are other owners who say, you know what, you've done so many projects with us. Here's what we want to achieve. We've worked through the design with the architects. Make it happen. Come let me know when it's done. Does that ever happen? It does. I very much so. Where, you know, let's be honest, um, you know, everybody has their day job. They have enough things to do as a responsibility as a CFO or COO of a not-for-profit or of a corporation. So there are definitely situations where uh, somebody may say, hand us the keys when it's ready. And then the question is, and that takes a lot of trust and faith. And, and a lot of guts on your part. It really does, because it's also, we're not only managing the team, we are also managing the owner to some degree and their expectations. And, um, you know, it's very difficult but necessary to say to an owner, Uh, That's, you know, I appreciate that you want to change everything right now, but if you change X or Y, you are impacting the completion date, the schedule date, the budget. So let's analyze whether that's something that's absolutely necessary. Now, um, as a real estate lawyer who uh, represents a lot of different kinds of clients, uh, certainly people in the real estate industry who know how to do their projects, but also a lot of non-real estate industry uh, corporations, I find that I, I may be somebody who's called first, and the and the client wants me to help choreograph and sequence, okay, so uh, should we be hiring the architect? Should we be hiring the, the contractor? And I'll often say um, exactly what you'd like to, me to say, which is, I'd say it anyway, which is that you really want, if you don't have somebody in-house who's done lots and lots and lots of projects for you, and there's some companies that are just constantly doing projects, and they have somebody in-house who's like you, but but often, you know, you really need somebody who's going to be your uh, your quarterback, your 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 
owner's representative, somebody who's going to choreograph. Um, and, and in some cases, that you really need a space planner early to see, you know, what are you talking about? You're talking about 100,000 square feet? You're talking about 25,000 square feet? Are you shrinking, growing? What, you know, your preconceptions aren't, aren't necessarily right company. Um, so when you come in, what's, what are the first, I mean, you have to evaluate, I assume, all those things. And so building the team, I guess, is your first, once you, well, I guess you've already talked about, you got to first get the, the uh, owner's vision for what they want to achieve. And then you've got to start taking steps. What, take us through some of those. Absolutely. So the, the timing of adding the appropriate team members is very, very critical. If people get on board too soon, then it's unnecessarily costing you money to have them at the table prematurely. It's also very important, uh, as I keep referring to that very early project planning phase, to, for instance, you cannot call an architect and say, I need to design a new building and not have an idea already or not be aware that you need to work together with that designer to say, well, what is the size of this new building you need? Um, do you know? It is very important to know what can your company or your not-for-profit support financially. Um, what size building can you afford? Again, not only to build but to sustain for multiple years. What are you capable of borrowing from financial institutions? So all of that comes into play to say um, it's really very appropriate to be the most efficient and say, all right, let's, let's come together and huddle, determine who needs to be at the table, whether it be a financial advisor uh, to work on your behalf to see how much you're capable of borrowing, uh, whether it be a, if you need, for instance, if you are a senior living community and you want to expand, are you certain that the market will support that expansion? Um, all of that goes into play. It is, it doesn't behoove anybody if you have, for instance, a design team at the table and the designer says to you, what do you think about silk on the walls? And you say, <laughs> I love silk on the walls, let's do it. And then it grows and it grows and it grows. It's not that architect's uh, mistake if you have not appropriately said, here is our budget. This is what we can afford to do. Right. Uh, what happens too often is is that the the design team is not the design. Neither the design team nor the owner are properly managed to keep coming back to that long term goal and long term budget to say, hold on a minute, um, because if it goes out to bid and the number comes back triple what you can afford, nobody wins. So, so one of your roles, one of your jobs is to keep your eye on the ball so that the architects, the designers, and design professionals don't design the Taj Mahal when it's just way outside the budget and then it's just gonna spend needless time and energy scaling it back, which actually may segue into we have a caller um, who's a question about, I think about appraising and valuation. I don't know if it's gonna relate to what we're talking about, but Diane in New Jersey, welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Hi, how are you? Very well. Thank you for calling. How can we help you? What's your question? Um, yeah, it really doesn't fall into what you're talking about, but it's a question all the same. Um, I have a condo, you know, here in Jersey that I'm, you know, getting ready to sell, and it's in a small building that, and they're in my town. There's not a whole lot of similar comparables to it, um, and and none of nothing, and it's been four years since anything sold in my building. So when an appraiser comes in. I'm worried that 
it's going to appraise low because they've got nothing, no comparables to it. So what what are appraisers like real estate appraisers? What do they look for? I mean, like, what do you what what do I do about something like that? Okay, th- this is a residential condominium apartment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, one, one, I guess this is something I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. Um, uh, and if, Roselle, you have any thoughts, you're, you're, you're welcome to, to chime in. But, but basically, um, appraisers uh, in most jurisdictions um, are, are required by law for some purposes to consider the three methods of evaluation. And the very first is what you're talking about, which is market comparables, is are there very comparable properties that, uh, that they can look at? And that, that is not just to look at are there comparable condos that have sold, uh, but they're also going to look at uh, for if, you know, what, what's the, uh, 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 the land comparables going for, what's the building, what's the, the location. You know, they can, it's not just simply uh, getting a, an identical or very close uh, nature of that, that property. Uh, the second is if it's income producing and if this condo were um, uh, you were renting out to a tenant, if it's income producing, they look at what's the net operating income after all expenses are paid, what's the, the net return on that asset, and then they capitalize that by figuring, okay, the return on real estate of this nature should be 5% or 9% or 10% or, you know, and, th- and that's where the appraiser comes in to figure out what's the return on capital for that kind of real estate in that kind of location. And so there's a mathematical way of getting to a value based on how much uh, uh, return is, is, is coming coming out. And then the, the, the last way, the last resort is uh, in some cases is what we call reproduction costs less depreciation. So if we had to rebuild it from scratch today, uh, what would it cost to build it? And then if it's a 20-year-old, we'll depreciate it. Uh, and depreciation is not just its age, because real estate can be maintained so it's as good as new, but they'll depreciate it to the condition it's, it's in now. So, But your situation is that there just haven't been a lot of relevant sales for a while. So what, bro- what, broker- uh, what appraisers will do is they'll go to real estate brokers and they'll talk to them about what do they think it would sell for in this market. And that's not necessarily dispositive, but that's, um, you know, that, that's, all goes, that's all the grist for their mill. Um, well, first, let me ask you, Diane, is that, is that addressing your question? So it's, I mean, it's out of my hands. It's nothing I can do, regardless, whatever. But, but I, w- I was just curious because nothing has. It's been four years since a, um, a unit in my building has sold. So they're, they, they don't, they're not going to go back and look at that number, are they? Or compare it to, you know, what the market was four years ago to now? Will they do that? Yeah, they will. They, if if they the will. only thing they have to look at is what happened four years ago, uh, they'll look at that. But they may look at other buildings and say, okay. What, what, what has been the appreciation over four years in your community, um, you know, in your, in your, or in similar communities? So they'll say, okay, well, this is the only apartment that sold in this building, and it's four years ago, but in other similar kind of buildings in the area, uh, appreciation has uh, been at the rate of 2% a year or something like that. Or if this was uh, 2009 or 2010, it may be depreciating prices may have been going down from four years, you know, from 2007 to 2011 or something like that. But, uh, but they will, they will look at that kind of thing. But uh, I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much for calling. That's a, it's a very good question. Um, and if there are any other listeners who want to uh, uh, call in, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we're live in the studio on Friday, May 4th. 
Uh, before our break, uh, Roselle, I want to go back to uh, some of the things that we were talking about in terms of the team. Um, and I gather that the, 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 the perfect team is going to be different for every project. That's absolutely true. And what you may think is the perfect team uh, as you say, may be for a specific project, but may not be for your own project. In recently starting to work with uh, a client for a new project, they had expressed they had, oh, we have the best architect in the country on our team. And, and really needed to evaluate, do you need the best architect in the country in this particular area of expertise for your project? If this is an architect that's used to designing space that's $600 a square foot, and we know you can't afford more than 400 a square foot, then why are you paying an architect to that their expertise? And so by reevaluating who is the right team, uh, you know, that took their design costs from 800000 to $400,000 uh, just by finding the right architect. And, and you can be, and I, and I know from, from, from working with you and your company, that you can be incredibly valuable for that. Um, I was lucky in that when I did a project, um, I, the first architect, I wanted to bring in several architects to interview. The first one came in was actually somebody I knew the best, was absolutely one of the best in the city, somebody I had worked with professionally. Um, and he came in and he took one look at the project and went through it and said, this is going to be really exciting, but I'm not right for you. What, what my whole style, my whole approach, my cost is, is, is this way and I don't want to identify anything and I know what you want is that way and I, I want to end up being your friend. I don't want to end up being your enemy. Uh, now, I professionally, I had a basis for, for understanding that, but most people don't. So you would be invaluable, Rosella, in helping the owner realize that this may be the best, this famous architect, but he or she may be designing ultra-modern things, and that's not what the style that, that they want. Absolutely, and the same goes for the, uh, for the construction team. You, know, you may find, uh, say, that you love the work of a specific uh, construction firm, but again, does that construction firm have the expertise? Do they have the appropriate case studies that you can say, yes, this is comparable to the type of building that I'm building? Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break, a short break, listeners, so please stay with us. But after the break, we're going to get into uh, some real projects. We're going to talk about uh, managing risk, what can go wrong, and what you do about it. So all the things that whether you're building an addition to your kitchen or you're building a new building or fitting out office space, uh, the kind of things you're going to want to look out for and how to deal with them. And we're also going to talk about uh, you know, women in the industry. It's something that I know is very uh, meaningful to you, Rosella, because you're in an industry that's been dominated by, by men. And I think that'll be interesting for a lot of our callers. So you're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. And if you want to join our conversation after our break, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm your host, Bob Lane, and our guest is Rosella Harvey, one of the most highly regarded owner's representatives in the construction and building industry. So please stay with us. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Bob Lane. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, thank you to those who have been with us for staying with us during our short break, and welcome to any new listeners who are just tuning in. Rosella, um, 
we've talked about uh, your, your background. We've talked about what an owner's rep is relative to a project manager, construction manager, and and how you stand in the shoes of the owner of the of the uh, the project. And, and depending on the nature of the situation, you may have all the responsibility, all the power, authority, or you may be, you know listening to your to your client um, but one of the things that's in every project is risk and there's risk of unforeseen uh, consequences there could be shortages of labor or materials there can be uh, uh, things that are discovered there could be changes that weren't expected uh, uh, the owner or, or other stakeholders can just change their mind financing can go down uh, how, how do you uh, prioritize those how do you deal with them how do you allocate them that's a great question, Bob. It is uh, absolutely necessary to consider the risk and then double that <laughs> because <laughs> there are things that can happen and that's inevitable. There is no way to control what's going to happen with the weather, with the market, uh, with any of that, especially in times where the market is booming, which it really is at the moment. So, you know, when you have unknowns such as how much of an impact are the potential steel tariffs going to have on my uh, house addition? Like, really, I mean, does it, does it so not? So out of the blue, we get the idea that there might be tariffs for con uh, construction contracts that have been in place for months. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they can, you know, if the material has already uh, been purchased and then you, well, let me take a step back. If you have already determined how much you have to build it, and then it's, it happens to be in the contract with your contractor that uh, they have the right to increase their material costs, if the market increases their material costs, then you contractually have to pay that material increase when you're already into your project. So that very fine print in every contract is critical and why you have to have the appropriate legal counsel uh, throughout your entire project. I get a lot of referrals through lending institutions. Um, in addition to you know, the maximum is repeat client, the second are lending institutions because these lending institutions have said that they are more comfortable underwriting a risk when they know the budget is realistic and that the schedule is realistic. It does not behoove anybody for me to say to you, oh, you want this finished in a year? Yeah, we can make that happen when we cannot make that happen. So not only, you know, you build in these appropriate contingencies from a cost and a schedule perspective. When you look at the cost, you know, what does your lending institution require? If you are building ground up in the middle of a field and you your contract is tight, then 5% hard construction cost is appropriate. If you are taking a historic building and you are uh, modifying its use, you know, a minimum of 10%, probably closer to 125 to 15% contingency. As a contingency. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you look at, even on those very early budgeting phase, you know, all too often people say, oh, well, I'm told I can build this for a million dollars. Okay, who told you a million dollars? Oh, my neighbor's uncle's cousin is a builder. And okay, that's great, but that's hard construction cost. And when you're building your budget, your 
cost outside of bricks and sticks can be an additional 50% on top of that cost. So your $200 a square foot building is really more like $300 a square foot when you add in all of the above of maybe your finance interest fees or what have you. That's an interesting uh, observation um, and a a terrific one um, because people use uh, rules of thumb like how many dollars per square foot for a certain thing, $200 a square foot. I was told for project that we did, which is a historic restoration for my wife and my home, that for $300 a square foot, you can have anything you want. It ended up being close to $500 a square foot. And this was a church building, and we estimated about six feet of wood rock under the uh, slate roof that, and that we thought that was, the, the architects and the contractors all thought that was ample. Uh, that, that so the slate had to be taken off for six feet up and replaced the wood. Turned out to be once they did that, there was another six feet. It was twelve feet. That increased it by a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it was like ridiculous. There's no way to anticipate that. I mean, how how do you? So I was going to ask you to explain why is it five percent in one situation and ten to twelve uh, percent in another? And I guess that's your experience and knowing that. Well, that may that risk itself may not occur. Those kinds of things are going to come up. Is that that's absolutely true? It really depends upon the type of project. Um, how tight is your design before you start building it? Um, if you are approaching it uh, with a contractor and yet you wanted to save some money and not have the design team do full construction documents that are one hundred percent accurate, but you thought that. Uh, design development documents were appropriate, well, then you're going to need a much higher contingency. And it's not just contingency in your dollars, in your budget, it's also contingency in the schedule, Uh, especially when you're looking at, you know, you take an educational facility. Uh, Those students are coming on day one. And if they are, you have a responsibility to have their space ready. And if you don't, it's uh, if it's a paying institution like at a university, then you're losing dollars. And if it is a public school, well, th- what happens to those children if they can't come to school? Who's going to take care of them as their summer just got extended? And, and that's true if you're building a hotel where you've already booked conferences. Absolutely. If, if, whether you're building an office uh, building for yourself and you've got to move out of your old space because somebody else is coming in and uh, it's almost always that deadline is going to be paramount who who takes the risk so you're involved in you're you're involved from the you've you've got the the lawyers the architects you've got the construction people you've got the insurers you've got the lenders i mean how do you allocate risk and i know it's not all up to you um it's heavily negotiated but what would be your judgment as to what kind of risks does the builder take what kind of risks does the owner take etc well that's a great question and and giving you an example Uh, I was working on a project recently where the owner said, I need this building built two years from today and said, wow, that's tight. Uh, Well, that's not negotiable. We need it because the students are coming on this day. And so when you look at the long-term schedule and the architect says, I need two more weeks to finish my construction documents. It was my call to say, I'm really sorry, but you can't have two more weeks because if you take two more weeks and that pushes back our bidding period and then it's the contractor who is 
taking a risk. And that's not appropriate to ask a contractor to take a two-week risk and to make it up before they've even put a shovel in the ground. So you need to figure out you are contracted as a designer to meet this schedule. And so let's figure out together how to make you meet that schedule. And uh, all too often in projects, somebody say, I just can't do it. And then that's the real challenge. And you've got to get the whole team together. Where can we shave and, and, and find some time in the, in the schedule? Well, you absolutely do. And it's, uh, it's, it, can, it can be rather stressful, uh, you know, at, at every level in that it's, I believe very strongly that you need to have an appropriate time at the end of your schedule for the end user to get in and get comfortable before an opening day. It is not appropriate to say, oh, we need a certificate of occupancy uh, the Friday before Labor Day and the students show up on the day after Labor Day. Those teachers need the time to set up their classrooms because if they don't and they're uncomfortable, it, uh, it's your end user in the situation, the students who suffer. Well, well, actually, that's a good segue to something we talked about, which is how, how do you define, you know, how do you know when the project's done? How do you know when it's successful? How do you, you know, what, what uh, I guess, a lot of things go into that. It does. Uh, to me, the ultimate success story is if a client says, I I want to build another building or I want to go into phase two and I want the exact same team. Be well, that certainly sounds like it was a success. Indeed, yeah. indeed, because the approach is, you know, the approach that I take is one of teamwork, of if there is an issue, it doesn't make sense to point fingers and point blame. What we are is a team, and we will roll up our sleeves and together figure out appropriate solutions for those inevitable hiccups that might occur. Um, and, and I guess uh, success in some ways is, is easy if it comes in on time, on budget, uh, with everybody still on speaking terms. Uh, that's, that's success. Of course, it doesn't always happen that way. Um, I want to just welcome any uh, listeners who have come in for the last quarter of our, uh, of our hour. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane, and our guest is Rosella Harvey, one of the most highly regarded owner's representatives in the commercial space uh, uh, in South, based in southeastern Pennsylvania, but with projects all over, and hopefully we'll have some time to talk about a few of those. Uh, but first, and if you want to call for our last few minutes, our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And in fact, we have one such caller, uh, Jeff from Naples, Florida. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Thanks for taking my question. It's a pleasure. We're happy to have you. You have a question about uh, project? How can we help you? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm support of potentially selling an office building for a premium just because of where it is, but I need to do a 1031 exchange, and the buyer is willing to develop another property, which I can take the funds and do the exchange. My concern is the buyer developer has never worked in the market and in that area the city council is fairly rigorous uh, about their needs uh, for any kind of building in the area it's a high density high expense area and how do you when you're planning a project uh, budget in the cost of going to city council for multiple meetings with the architects and the builders and then them requiring changes 
how do you budget the cost and the time? I'm just concerned that maybe the developer hasn't, who hasn't developed in this market doesn't understand the ramifications. Jeff, that's a great question and involves a lot of different things. Um, I'm going to touch on the 1031 issue because that's going to put some hard deadlines on it. And then this is squarely in, in, in Rosella's camp to sort of help figure out how you're going to budget your time and your cost. Uh, it's one of the things that I wanted to uh, ask Rosella about uh, when you're dealing, when you're just budgeting with architects and contractors and building. Uh, but government approvals is a whole nother category, and that's where you're going. So uh, the first question is, so the 1031 exchange, and as, as, as you probably know, if you're involved in it, but for our listeners, 1031 exchange is a like-kind exchange, and it's a, a tax uh, internal revenue code provision that allows somebody who's, who would otherwise be selling real estate and then having to pay capital gains or other tax on, their, on the, uh, the premium that you said you were selling for. It's a way of deferring it by taking that money, putting it in a qualified intermediary for uh, up to six months, 180 days, um, and uh, using that money to buy a replacement property, and then you're deferring. You don't have to pay any tax on, on, on that amount. So your first challenge, Jeff, is that when you're selling your, your uh, existing property, um, that money, you've got six months, right? You've got 45 days to identify the replacement property and then 180 days to close on that replacement property. So your replacement Correct. property, as I'm understanding you, is something that's to be built. Correct. Okay, so you've got a, the cost of, of that is really important, obviously, uh, that you're going to be buying it for a number that you can afford with your the money that you're getting from your first property. But you've got to make sure that you can close on it in that 180 days. Is that right? Correct. Now, the, the, the plan is not to, uh, to sign a contract, agree to purchase, but not to close until they're able to have the new property developed. My concern is, is one, they may not understand in that market the cost, and two, the time it's going to take. Well, that's why they need somebody like Rosella, and I'm going to ask Rosella to sort of give some advice about how to manage that situation. But I can tell you, you're talking about a very highly risky uh, situation. So, wait, wait, you're not going to close on the sale of your first property until you know you can buy the second? Correct. And, ah, and, and okay, the, the okay. Project, the second project is going to be much bigger than the one we're selling. Okay, so you're going to use all of the proceeds from the sale, plus you're going to add to it, so you'll get the deferral, and then you'll start a new one. Okay, Correct. so, so Rosella, what would you recommend where you've got uh, a developer who's in a locality that uh, he or she may not be all that familiar with uh, to manage that? That's a great question, and the the time it takes is always, and the money it takes is always considerably longer than you think it, it, it might be. And so your critical path to success, and that's the one thing that I always look at, what is your critical path to success, which is ultimately having this city approval. And then when it's effect, when that city approval is affecting your long-term financial goal, then it, as Bob said, you have to take a lot of risk in order to make it, to shorten that overall schedule. So meaning that in the ideal world, if money and time you know, weren't working against you, you would have a linear path 
where you say, okay, let's go get all of the approvals we need from the city, from the, all the government approvals necessary, make sure we can get them and then go into the next phases. However, it could take a year to get those approvals. Yeah, let, let me uh, add to that, Jeff, um, as a real estate lawyer who does a lot of uh, government entitlements and zoning and land use and all kinds of approvals at various levels, um, your concern about the developer you're working with not being uh, all that familiar with that process or at least that process in wherever you're developing, I don't know whether that's in Naples or, or somewhere else, is very well-founded and you really need to get a local lawyer who understands exactly what's going on at that zoning board or that planning commission or that township supervisors or commissioners or, or whatever whatever the posture is for the approvals. Uh, do you need to spend uh, some months negotiating with uh, community groups and planners? Uh, or is this something that, I mean, you can, you can uh, scope out what the technical time frame is, okay, that he makes an application and then you don't hear about that application for, say, 30 days and then that 30, that's going to be rejected because you have to go to a zoning board or, or whatever. And so that's going to take 30 days to make an appeal and you have to have notices to community groups or to uh, government people and there's going to be a prescribed time for that in most jurisdictions. And then the hearing is going to be set and that may be in 30 days. It may be in three or four months depending on how backed up they are. Then you're going to have a hearing, and are they going to make a decision right away or within 30 days? Are you going to have multiple hearings? And then is there going to be a, an, an appeal period? So when Rosella say it could take a year, it could take three months if, if, if everything went just according to the deadlines. But realistically, if you really know how that's going to, that situation is generally working, it could take six months, a year, or whatever, and you've got to be able to factor that in. Uh, are we addressing your question? Yes, yes. And that, the other question I have for Zella is, in any project, is there an amount that the developer says, okay, we're going to commit X percentage of this project just to getting approvals and authorizations and timing the delays? Because I watch a lot of these uh, planning board meetings, and then it has to go to city council, and I see attorneys like you and architects like her, and they're pleading their case. And then you've got the people on city council saying, well, I really don't like the way you did those windows, and I don't like the color of your roof. Can you go back and change that? Yep. So how, as a developer, you have to, from the beginning, wanting to have all your ducks in a row, how do you decide, okay, we're going to commit X percentage of this project just to the cost of experts, attorneys, and the architects going and standing before these former CEOs of corporations who now are retired, and want to nitpick this project. Well, that that is, um, and I know Rizal has seen this, and, and I certainly have seen this, that's quality experience. So experience is, is important, but experience has also got to be what I call quality experience. So it's got to be experience that has dealt with that. And, you know, one thing you can't coach is judgment. So people have to have good judgment and say, uh, you know, this is what's likely to happen in your situation, in this area, these community associations or these city council people or this design review board at the planning uh, commission, they are customarily going to nitpick and talk about the, you know, color of the, of the, of, of the doors. And, and another thing is, is, you know, one of my roles to piggyback off of that is to say, let's 
here's where the risk management comes in. Let's consider some questions or some arguments that they might make against this project. Let's be ready to answer every complicated question. And it, you're absolutely right. You may spend uh, thousands upon thousands of dollars and then it ultimately not get accepted. Yeah. And, and yet that's a chance that you have to take. So having an experienced, as Bob said, an experienced real estate attorney that has the wherewithal to know whether it's a good risk or not is critical. One of the things that I, my approach and everybody uh, in my world uh, has similar approaches but, but, but different philosophies is that I'll, I would say to, to you, Jeff, or to your, the developer that you're working with is uh, let's early on, before word of this gets out, let's go find out who are the stakeholders, get to them, try to get them on board, try to sell them on the value of this project. Um, and so uh, before they getting into the, the details, find out are, they, are you going to be walking into a buzzsaw or not. Um, I have uh, found out for some projects for clients I do a lot of work for, look, we're going to be in for a fight. I think it's a fight we can win, but it's going to take us uh, you know, six months, a year, whatever it is. Uh, is this something that you want to do? And they'll say, you know what? Life's too short. We're going to go on. We're going to do something different. Thanks. Some of the best deals we do are the ones we choose not to do. So in any event, um, I think that uh, this has been a great question, Jeff. It's actually given us an opportunity to talk about a lot of things that we would like to have talked about uh, in any event. So uh, thanks, thanks for being with us. I'm going to let you go because we're coming down to the end of our, of our hour. Thanks for calling. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 